All right, let's get started. Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we do give you all the praise and honor for calling us to yourself, for calling us to be a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Uh, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to be among us this morning as we uh, close out our Sunday School series on generosity. Uh, challenge us that we might die to ourselves and, and live unto you and our brothers and our sisters. Uh, may we be lights in the midst of darkness. May we enact love and righteousness that we might reflect our generous Lord in this world. Uh, in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, this is our, our final lesson on generosity. I thank you all for uh, sitting under this series. I hope you've learned a few important things along the way. Uh, generosity, it turns out, is a fundamental characteristic of God. He is fundamentally generous. That's who He is. And uh, that also means that, that that's who we should be because we're created in His image. Uh, how are we reflecting God if we aren't generous like He is generous? Well, it's impossible. So the last few times, uh, we've began by highlighting the Gospel. I hope by now you can appreciate the Gospel story as it relates to the renewal of the generous image of God in us. Uh, because the Gospel is the power of God to change us more and more into the, into the true image of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've said that this gospel is about the story of Jesus. And so I hope by now we can rehearse the contents of the gospel story. And I'll ask one last time, what is the gospel? Extra point to anyone who can tell us the major elements of the gospel. What is, you're looking at me funny, Ben. What's the gospel? Okay. That's good. That's good. Anybody else? The story of how, yes, yes, absolutely. All of those are true. That's good. Um, the last few lessons, I've pointed out eight things that we, we kind of have to remember about the gospel story, right? Um, one is that Jesus pre-existed with the Father, and that's the pre-existence um, that the Son of God has always existed, right? Um, two, Jesus took on flesh, fulfilling God's promises to David. Jesus became incarnate. Uh, Jesus died for sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's atonement, right? Ben, ben was talking about that earlier. And then he was buried. That's, that's important as well. Um, and then uh, fifth, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Resurrection, another important aspect of the gospel story. Uh, number six, he appeared to many, right? Uh, Jesus not only resurrected, but um, he, he showed himself. He made an appearance uh, to many people. In fact, 500 people saw him uh, after he was resurrected. 
uh, 7, he is now seated at the right hand of God as Lord. Uh, he has all kingly authority over the world. And then 8, uh, this Jesus who has been exalted will one day come back and judge the world. Right? That's the basic gospel story that we need to keep in mind. Um, I, I can't tell you how important it is that we know this, right? Uh, that we get this into our minds, our hearts, and embody it in, in, in our flesh. Uh, because how can we tell people about the gospel if we ourselves aren't familiar with that story, right? So uh, this is the story of the church. This is the story in which we live in. Apart from this story, there's no good news. There's no redemption. There's, there's nothing. Uh, but it is in this good news that we are being renewed in, in the image of God. Uh, this morning, we are looking at the final aspect of the image of God uh, that He is renewing in us, uh, namely, our strength and our dominion. Uh, we'll look at Christ's work for us and how He accomplishes this renewal, um, because something is deeply wrong uh, with the way we use our power as human beings. We often use it to put ourselves above other people. Uh, but thanks be to God, He is now at work within us to change us into the generous co-rulers that He's made us to be. Uh, again, we distinguish dominion uh, or strength, uh, but we need to keep asking ourselves, how does this renewal affect the renewal of the mind and the heart? Because they all go together, as we've been saying all, all along. And so with that, here's the big idea for us this morning. I hope it doesn't rain. Uh, that's not the big idea, but I hope it doesn't rain. But here's the big idea. Uh, Jesus Christ, as the true King of God, is restoring in human beings the abundant rule of God. All right? Jesus Christ, as the true King of God, is restoring in human beings the abundant rule of God. Uh, let's go back to the Garden of Eden one last time, and, and I'm sure by now you're tired of hearing the story uh, back in that garden. Uh, we've seen what the cunning serpent has done. He has left humankind with a scarcity mindset and a self-enclosed heart. Uh, so what's the final thing that he came to destroy? Well, the final damage that the serpent caused was that he imprisoned the will of Adam and Eve and every conse consequent human being. Um, and in other words, he has left mankind fending for itself. Fallen humankind now uses his or her will for self-preservation instead of using it to serve sacrificially. Uh, the serpent knew that uh, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God to exercise dominion and rule over the face of the earth. And he hated that. Um, he hated the fact that God has made them to be co-rulers with him uh, in creation. Uh, so what did the serpent tempt uh, them with? Well, you know, like Burger King, you can have it your way, Adam and Eve. Uh, you will be like God, and, and you can do whatever you want. You can be liberated from His rule and His kingship. That's the temptation. 
but what was the outcome from Adam's failure to stamp out the serpent and give in into that temptation? Uh, it wasn't freedom from God, it was slavery to sin. Uh, Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that both Jews and Greeks are both under sin. Uh, Paul goes on to prove this point by stringing together passages from the Psalter. Uh, I think we all are familiar with this passage. He, he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse, curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that only some parts of us are enslaved to sin. Uh, no, human beings are now naturally enslaved to sin. All of their members partake of the works of sin. This is comprehensive slavery. Uh, what do Reformed people call that? Or Calvinistic people call that? Total depravity, exactly. Yeah, we call it total depravity. It doesn't mean we're all Hitlers, right? But it does mean that sin has infiltrated every aspect of who we are. It affects us. Now we are instruments of unrighteousness. Uh, because this is true, then people enslaved to sin cannot rule according to God's generosity. I mean, I, I think that's pretty obvious. Because what does sin do? Sin makes us incredibly selfish. And generosity, in contrast, is the opposite, right? Generosity is about selflessness, but sin makes us selfish. And so we needed liberation from the enslavement of sin if we were ever going to fulfill our call as God's generous co-rulers of the world. And so the question we want to ask is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Well, He came as the humble King to conquer the sin and brokenness of this world. I, I like how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. Uh, question 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Uh, answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. What's so amazing about the way Jesus conquers is that he doesn't conquer with brute force. He doesn't subdue the enemy of sin and death by military conquest or crusade. He doesn't use the sword or guns or bombs. So how does Jesus conquer sin? How does Jesus conquer sin? Anybody? Death. Yeah. That, that's a message the world would never, will never understand. 
Even Israel didn't understand that. They were expecting uh, the kingdom to be overturned by this mighty Messiah that was to come. But that's not the way Jesus conquered, is it? Um, We see Jesus, the King, conquer victoriously in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11. If you want to turn there with me, you're welcome to. I hope you remember this passage. Uh, we, We went through Philippians not too long ago. What's, what's the pattern in this passage? How did Jesus become king? How did he, he become exalted? By humbling himself? Yeah, but what happened before that? Yes. He, he had to go low, right? Uh, the, the pattern really is, is V-shaped, right? Because where did Jesus start? Where, uh, from eternity, huh? Did you say something, Dave? Oh, sorry. Uh, from eternity, Jesus, as the Son of God, was equal with God. That's what the passage says, right? Uh, he was at the highest place possible. He was highly exalted, right? He was equal in power and glory, as our confession puts it. Uh, but he, he put that glorious advantage aside, And instead, he descended and came in the flesh to take on the status of a slave. Right? High, very low. Um, our Our Lord went so low that he became obedient to the point of death, even to the point of um, even even death on a cross. uh, Verse eight. So very high and then very low. But that's the way Jesus wins over sin and death. It's highly paradoxical. Uh, We'll spend eternity trying to plumb the depths of that mystery. uh, That the Son of God should defeat sin and death by bearing our sin on the cross and dying for it. Uh, Jesus submitted to the very things that enslaved us. Think about that. That, That's crazy. That's a crazy message. Uh, Because... It is the only way um, that Jesus was able to be enthroned as the king of the universe. Uh, So Paul continues in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Let me put it this way. Jesus Christ died a humble death for sinners. Now He reigns as the King of the universe. That's, That's good news. This is a part of the gospel that is often overlooked. Yes, Jesus died on the cross and He made atonement for us. But... But that resulted in His exaltation. And that's an important aspect of the gospel that we can't miss. Um, Because if Philippians 2 is any indicator, then Jesus' enthronement is actually the climax of the gospel. 
because Jesus took on flesh, He lived a lowly life, died on a cursed cross, and was raised again on the third day. Because of that happened, Jesus is now installed as the King of the world. That's, that's good news. That every knee will one day confess His kingship, His lordship. Uh, this is captured by that, that, uh, that divine title, Lord. What we will be confessing is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, he shares in the divine identity. Uh, that's what we're saying every time we call Him Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're acknowledging that Jesus is on the throne, ruling and reigning, and we're not. He's ruling and reigning because He willingly sacrificed Himself by way of crucifixion. Uh, Paul says in Romans 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to, to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Uh, let, me, let me put it this way in the terms that we've been using in this series. Jesus Christ, the King, overturns our scarce-based dominion when we identify with Him on that cross, when we die with Him on that cross. Uh, it is there that He brings our sinful and selfishness into nothing. He says to you and me, the ruler of self and sin is dead. That's what he says. In Christ, death no longer has dominion over us. Uh, as a result, Paul goes on to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We are no longer slaves to the desires of the flesh. I know it feels that way sometimes, but if you identify with Jesus and His cross, you have been liberated. Not so that you can do whatever you want, but we now have a different master, a different king. Uh, Paul teases this out. He says, um, Later on in Romans 6, but thanks be to God uh, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. See that? What this means is that Jesus has transferred us from one kind of rule into another kind of rule. Uh, from being slaves to our sinful desires to slaves of righteousness. Uh, God has overturned our will to power using Nietzsche's terminology, right? Uh, he has turned our will to power. If you're a Christian, if you're following King Jesus, uh, then your burden is altogether different. It's no longer to, pers to pursue selfish acts but selfless acts. Uh, we should be burdened when we aren't concerned about embodying righteousness in the church and in the world. Uh, listen to this. It's so good. Uh, I think you're probably familiar with it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 
Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, did you hear that? Right? Why did God allow his son, the true king of the universe, to take on the status of a sinner? Well, it's so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, does God account us righteous because of the sin-bearing atonement of Jesus? Absolutely. There's reconcil reconciliation between God and sinners in, in Christ's perfect work. Our status as sinners has changed to righteous. But is that it? Is that it? Or does Paul have something more in mind for the Corinthians and for us? Uh, let me tell you, this isn't just about status. God wants more. Because God actually wants us to embody righteousness. To enact it as kings and queens made in His image. Uh, in the middle of the, of the next chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians ch uh, 6, uh, is where we get that phrase. Uh, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Everybody know that, that phrase? That passage? Yeah, it's pretty famous, right? But do you know what comes after that? Anybody? What comes after that? Well, Paul goes on to say, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I mean, someone might say, that's also talking about status. You know, we are righteous and those are lawlessness. We are light, they are darkness. Okay, maybe. Uh, but I don't think you can argue that it's strictly that. That is only a status change. Because if you read the rest of the chapter, Paul talks about God promising us uh, to make us a living temple. A living temple. His living temple. Uh, and in the beginning of chapter 7, Paul says, Since we have these promises, His promise to make us a living temple, His living temple, He says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's not just a status change. That's a call to cleanse ourselves, right? To, to pursue holiness. In other words, for Paul, becoming the righteousness of God is also about separating ourselves from unholy things. Uh, this is part of what he means by not being equally yoked with unbelievers. That act, that separation onto holiness, completes the righteous status that God gives us in His Son. So what's my point? My point is that becoming the righteousness of God involves a status change, yes, but it also involves an embodied change. I think there's too many of us who think that once we profess Jesus, that we have a different status and then we don't have to pursue righteousness and holiness anymore. That's wrong. That's wrong. We have a status change, 
but we also need embodied change. They go hand in hand, like loyalty and trust. You can't have one without the other, uh, because we, we don't just need a change of status. God is also renewing His image in us that we might rule or use our strength for righteousness and justice for the benefit of other people. Why? Well, isn't that what our King looks like? That's what our King looks like. That's why. Okay, let me, let me pause there. Uh, does anybody have any questions or comments? Nothing? I must have been really clear. Okay. So what have we learned so far? Uh, we've learned that it is in and through the kingly work of Jesus that we are being renewed to rule in abundance. Uh, now we are more and more enabled to rule in righteousness rather than self-preservation. Because that's the world out there, isn't it? They want to rule because of self-preservation. They want to rule for themselves. But ruling, ruling in the kingdom is about ruling for other people, for the benefit of other people. Ruling on behalf of King Jesus then is about self-sacrifice. Uh, it looks like Jesus is called uh, to His disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, I like Luke's account of this. He adds this little word, uh, daily. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, uh, cruciform dominion or a cross-shaped rule is a daily call to live for the sake of other people. Deny yourself on a daily basis for the sake of other people. That's what the taking up of our cross is all about. Uh, maybe you've noticed uh, lately, the last couple of Sundays, that we've been connecting the offices of the church to the renewal of the various aspects of the, of the image of God. Um, I said the mind is tied to the pastor because he's responsible for cultivating an abundant mind in us. Uh, and last time I said the heart is tied to the office of deacon because it, um, it cultivates an abundant heart um, in us for the Lord. Right? So what do you think the main responsibility of the elder is? Protect? Protect. Good. Anybody else? What's, what's Dave's role in the church? Maintain order? Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, elders are responsible for cultivating that generous rule in the people of God. That we too might, might, might serve other people, might use our strength uh, for, sa uh, for sacrifice rather than self-preservation. Uh, that we might live daily uh, in righteousness for the benefit of other people. Uh, they are to oversee the spiritual matters of the church. They are to cultivate in us the righteous and abundant life, a way of life. Uh, for this reason, an elder is supposed to be a good leader, right? 
um, which really begins in his own household. Uh, listen to Paul's qualifications for an elder. He says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4 and 5, uh, the elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Uh, what's Paul's logic there? If an elder can't rule his house well, then what about the household of God? I mean, this is why elders are commonly called ruling elders. They're called to rule well in the church. They're the papas of the church. Uh, or to use Paul's term, uh, elders are overseers of the assembly, those who gather as the family of God. They're, they're looking over us, after us. Their job is to watch over the church and make sure that people are growing more and more in righteousness towards one another. That they too are embodying this self-sacrificial way of life. Uh, beloved, take advantage of your elders. That, that, that sounded wrong, huh? Uh, don't take advantage of them, uh, but learn from them, right? Take what they say seriously, because as the writer to the Hebrew says, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's a, that's a hard office. What's our job? Our job is to obey them and submit to them as we would uh, to our Father. They're here to help us grow, that we might reflect King Jesus. Contrary to popular belief then, elders are not out to get us. Uh, so allow our elders to speak hard things into your life because they love you. They want to instill discipline and righteousness in you. But let me encourage our, our elder uh, for a second. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say, Let them do this with joy. Do this. D ruling, right? Managing the household of God. Let, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage. Uh, notice what he says. Elder, he doesn't say to rule with indifference. He doesn't say rule with sulky faces. No, he says to rule with joy. I mean, isn't it really easy to groan when you're not seeing any change in people? Uh, let's, let's trust the Lord by continuing to rule with abundant joy. Um, you know, we can't ultimately change people. We can't make them live righteously because we can't change their hearts and their wills. But we know one who can, right? Our God can. And He's using, using our faithfulness to shape the congregation to be more and more like Jesus in His rule. Okay. But how do we rule when, when injustice is perpetrated against us? How do we respond when inequity, when injustice is committed against those whom we love? How do we use our strength for righteousness when we're being abused? 
That's a hard question, isn't it? Well, it requires a lot of wisdom, in my opinion. It's not always easy which direction to, to take. Uh, should we speak up? Should we just endure what's happening? It's not easy. Sometimes it means being silent like Jesus at his tribunal. Sometimes it means speaking up like Paul at his tribunal. Uh, but here's the thing. We always want to do what's most loving. Sometimes it requires opening our mouths. Sometimes it requires closing our mouths. But this is also part of the reason why we need each other, isn't it? This is why we need our elders. When we feel powerless, our brothers and our sisters, we need them to go to bat for us. Because if we generously... Um, because if generously ruling is about self-sacrifice and it's about the good of the other, then part of what that means is to speak up for those who are silenced. It means they speak up for, for us when we can't open our mouths. So the question is, are we protecting each other? Are we ruling well? Are we ruling with generosity for the sake of other people? Or is it about self-preservation still? I'll let you chew on that one. Um, but as we close this series, I want to talk about money. I want you to notice how little we've talked about money. I'm sure some of you are wondering uh, when I would talk extensively about money, but I haven't. I've mentioned it here and there, but I haven't really talked about money, right? At least not in, in big chunks. That's intentional on my part. Because I wanted you to see that generosity is so much more than how much money you can give to other people and how much money you can give to the church. If you take away anything from this series, I want you to remember that generosity touches every aspect of who we are. It doesn't just touch our wallets, it touches our minds, our hearts, and our strengths. Generosity is a way of life. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your generosity towards us. We thank you that we have been able to learn more, more about how generous you are to us and how much more generous we need to be because you've made us to be like you. Help us to be generous, uh, not just with our money, but with our minds, hearts, and strength. Help us to live a life of generosity for your glory and your honor. We pray all of this in the triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.